Welcome to the Invictus Church Podcast. We're grateful that you've chosen to listen, and we want to invite you to join us each week as we upload new content. Our prayer each week is that those who listen in would not just be stirred or inspired, but also changed. Now, get ready for life change with this week's message from Invictus Church. You really understand what the Bible means when it says the borrower is slave to the lender, and you feel like you're a slave uh, to Visa and to MasterCard and Discover, and you know those are the people who are really controlling your lives. And uh, you you understand what that's like. You feel like you're never going to get out of that mountain, out from under that mountain of debt, and that's, so that problem seems unbeatable. Maybe an unbeatable problem uh, that uh, it seems like you've got in your life is that boss that you work for, that you know that nincompoop, that idiot, that person that just doesn't ever get it and you think how in the world did this person rise to this position and get promoted and oh my gosh I'm, you know you've contemplated murdering them and you've planned it all out and you, you know I'm just kidding hopefully you've never gone that far but uh, you know it, it, it's it's pretty easy to get frustrated many times with our bosses with our employers um, maybe that that unbeatable problem in your life is that kid that you have who's 37 years old, still lives in your basement and won't move out. Or you have unbeatable problems like you desperately want to have children and you can't. Or your kid's on drugs or your kid is behaving differently than used to and you're like, what happened? My child is no longer the same person that they were two years ago. I've got these seemingly unbeatable problems in my life. It could be a disease, a financial problem, you name it. Anybody ever had one of those problems that you felt like this thing feels unbeatable? Come on, be honest. Yeah, I have. I have. Uh, Naaman in the Bible, this guy that we're going to look at named Naaman, uh, knows exactly what that's like. Naaman had a problem. We're going to look at it in 2 Kings 5, 1 through 7. So go ahead and turn there now. 2 Kings 5, verses 1 through 7. The king of Aram had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from what? Leprosy. He suffered from leprosy. It was a disease. At this time, Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel, and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying his gifts, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said, with this letter, I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in despair and said, this man sends me a leper to heal? Am I God that I can give life and take it away? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. So let's pause right there in the story and just talk about some of these uh, key characters. There was uh, the king of Aram who uh, he had a general who he greatly admired. This was his commander-in-chief, the guy in charge of all of his armies, and uh, the guy's name was Naaman. And uh, he had put Naaman in charge because Naaman had won all kinds of battles, this mighty, powerful, amazing warrior, but he had one significant challenge, and that is that he had leprosy. Now, in this day, this wasn't just a significant challenge. This was an unbeatable problem. There was no cure 
for leprosy. Today, there's a cure for leprosy, a medical cure. And, uh, but until recent history, leprosy was a horrible, slow, agonizing death sentence. It was not at all something that anybody wanted or wanted any part of. And so here's this guy, Naaman, who's got all of this stuff going for him, but he was sick with a disease called leprosy. Now, we've got to understand a little bit about leprosy, all right? When we're talking about leprosy in historical context, it's important for us to understand the, the nature of the disease, but it's also important for us to understand, especially to the Hebrews in the Old Testament, what leprosy was a symbol of, all right? Leprosy was a symbol that God used, a word picture, a real-life living picture that God used uh, to teach the people of Israel about sin. So when you read in the Bible about leprosy, you can almost just take out the word leprosy and put the word sin in there, and you can understand a significant amount about what sin does to us by learning about leprosy. And so leprosy was this horrible disease that was transmitted from one person to another, uh, you would get it from somebody else. Now, there's something we can learn there about sin. Sin is something we got from somebody else. We were born with it, and it was given to us by our wonderful great, 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 a million times grandparents, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve committed the sin in the garden, and the sin of Adam, Scripture says, was passed on to each of us, every generation. We are born with sin. Now, this is not a real popular topic in today's world. In today's world, people like to say, oh, you know, people are generally good. Have you heard that? People are generally good? Well, I'd like to say I wish people were generally good, and I hope that people, in a general sense, will be good. But the fact of the matter is that people are generally evil. All of us. How many of you who have raised children ever had to teach your kid to lie? None of us. You never had to teach a two-year-old toddler to pop another two-year-old toddler in the eye and say, mine, right? You don't have to teach your children to be selfish. You don't have to teach them to be rude. You don't have to teach them to be mean. You don't have to teach them to lie. You don't have to teach them to sin. Sin comes naturally to us. What doesn't come naturally? Sharing. Unselfishness. Gratitude. These characteristics that define what it means to be a good person are the very things that don't come naturally to us. We have to teach our children these things. And then we have to teach our, our children as they grow up and as they become young adults, we have to continue teaching them. And we as adults have to be taught these things continually. This is why we have bosses many times, because our bosses will call us in and say, hey, you know what? You did handle this situation wrong in your life. You need to handle it better this way. They're there to give us not just work guidance, but oftentimes even moral guidance. Well, there's a sobering thought. We are really messed up, is what this amounts to. All of us have the disease of sin, and it rots away at us. Leprosy was a slowly developing disease. It took years and years and years to kill a person. It was a disease of the flesh. Eventually, the flesh begins to get uh, gross and starts falling off, and people can lose fingers. And if you've ever seen somebody with advanced sta stages in the advanced stages of leprosy, it's really uh, a very tragic, tragic thing. But it's pretty manageable for many, many, many years. Now, sin is kind of that way. This is the way Satan sucks us in. He makes sin 
pretty comfortable for us. It's not all that bad. In fact, sometimes it feels pretty dang good. And it seems like there's never, <laughs> these chickens are never going to come home to roost. There's, there's never going to be any consequences to this. It's not that big a deal until one day you wake up and sin has rotted your fingers off. Sin rots us slowly but surely, and it destroys us on a spiritual level. The interesting thing about leprosy in the Old Testament, if you were a Jew and you lived in uh, Israel um, and you came down with leprosy, you did not go to the doctor for treatment. You would go to a priest for treatment. You went to a priest to seek help. The instructions are in the Old Testament. You find a lot about this in the book of Leviticus. If a person has um, uh, leprosy, they go to the priests, and here's what they're to do. And they're to follow these steps and so on and so forth. And God used that word picture, or that not word picture, that living picture of leprosy to uh, be an example to us that leprosy really shows us that we have a spiritual problem, not a physical problem. Our greatest problem is not the problem that you're facing right now that seems unbeatable. Your greatest problem is that you have sin inside you. Each of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Scripture tells us. Scripture also tells us, this is sobering and frightening. If you've never thought about this, I want you to think about this for just a minute. We are so sinful... And so rotted with spiritual leprosy on the inside that even our righteousness is offensive to God. You say, wait a minute, God's offended when I do righteous things? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that our righteousness is so overshadowed by our sin that when we come before God with our righteousness, Scripture says our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Now, this is going to gross some of you out, but I'm just telling you what's in the Bible. When we read about our righteousness being as filthy rags, the Hebrew words there that we translate and, and kind of uh, make sound really good and, and palatable and we give it churchy words and we say, are as filthy rags, as filthy rags... Those filthy rags that are described there in Hebrew are, the, are the, the, the rags that women would use for their monthly period. That's what our righteousness is before God. He's so pure that us, our righteousness compared to him is like that. We're so foul because of our sin, our spiritual leprosy, that our righteousness before him is like that. So, if anything, none of us here should feel very good about ourselves. How's that for a wonderful, happy, spiritual message on Sunday morning? Go home and feel bad about yourself. You're a horrible, rotten sinner. It's the truth. We are. The good news is that there's a cure. There's a cure. Naaman had everything going for him, but he was a leper. And no matter what you've got going for you, you're a sinner. But there's good news. There's a cure. 
a cure. Naaman sought a cure, didn't find it exactly where he was expecting to find it, went to the king of uh, Israel, and the king of Israel like freaks out. It's like, no pressure, I want you to heal him. Oh, yeah, that's great. Thanks from the king of Aram. By the way, heal this guy. And so if you were the king of Israel, you'd probably lose it a little bit. And uh, so the king of Israel is, is feeling the pressure and kind of stressed out. And here's what happens in verse 8, 2 Kings 5, 8 through 10. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent a message to him, why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. So when Naaman heard this, he decided, I'm going to go for it. If there's a potential cure here, I'm going to go see this guy. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. How would that make you feel? You've just traveled a long way. You've brought really expensive gifts. You show up to a guy's house, and he doesn't even come to the door. He sends a servant, and he doesn't come. In fact, he invited you. He said, send him to my house so that he'll find out that there's a real prophet in Israel. And so Naaman shows up at the house, and he doesn't even get greeted properly. He's just told, go take a bath in the Jordan River. Dip yourself seven times in the water, and you'll be healed. Now, that would have felt kind of strange, I think. Naaman was seeking God to solve his unsolvable problem, but when he sought God and he found this prophet of God, he didn't get the answer that he wanted. Have you ever sought God on something and not received the answer that you wanted? Anybody ever, would you admit, I've been frustrated with God? <laughs> come on, Lord, come through and do X, Y, or Z, and he decides to do A, B, C, or D, and you're like, what? were you thinking, Lord? You know, it, it kind of gets difficult for us to process sometimes. We, like Naaman, all understand what it's like to ask God for something and to be given an answer that we didn't really want. Now, here's what we many times say is, God didn't answer my prayer. But that's simply untrue. Do you know that God always answers your prayer? He just doesn't always give you the answer you want. God answers prayer four ways. If you're taking notes, these are, are, are freebie. You can just jot these down in the margin of your Bible there. Um, God answers one of four ways every time that you pray. He sometimes says yes. Woohoo! That's usually what we want. Come on, God, say yes. But this is only one out of four ways, all right? Sometimes God says no. Oh, that's not so exciting. Lord, give me a new car. No. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says wait. Hang on. Before you get that, before I do for you what you've asked for me to do, there's some growing that you need to do. There's some things that need to develop in your life before you have that, so you're going to have to wait. And it may be 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It may be that you don't get it until you are actually dead, and then you're gone, and God answers that prayer. Sometimes he says, wait. Now, before I tell you the fourth one, i got to tell you a story here. My youngest son, Hayden, when he was about five or six years old, we had a dog named Jodo. 
and uh, Jodo was uh, run over and killed on the first day of our vacation. We had gone to vac- on vacation, stopped at my parents' house to see them, and Jodo got out of the yard, got into a busy street, got run over and killed. Great way to start your vacation. And when you're a little kid about six years old and your dog that you love has just been killed, <clears throat> what do you do? Well, to Hayden it made perfect sense. Pray and ask God to bring Jodo back to life. And so he had been asking God to bring Jodo back to life, and um, Hayden came to me a couple weeks after Jodo had died, and he said, I've got a secret, Dad. I've been praying that God would bring Jodo back to life, and he hasn't done it, and I'm mad. We've all been there, haven't we? And you know what we sound like when we say that? When we... I've been praying for less and such, and God hasn't done it, and so I'm frustrated, I'm mad, I'm put out with him. We sound like a six-year-old. That's not to insult six-year-olds. That's just to say, that's what we sound like. We sound like an, a, a child. Because God, who has an infinite mind, who can comprehend everything, does know what's best for us. That's why it's perfectly okay for him to answer our prayer how he wants to, not how we want him to. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says wait. And then I've learned this over the years as a follower of Christ. My favorite way that he answers prayer is this fourth way. Sometimes God says, watch this. Just hold on, watch this. He's about to answer our prayer in a way we didn't possibly expect, and it's going to be way better than what we asked for. Way better than what we asked for. Sometimes, this, this is when God is showing off. All right? Sometimes he's like, I got this, and it's going to be so much better than you could possibly ask, think, or imagine. Just buckle your seatbelt and watch this. And in the case of Naaman, that's what he did. So let's go ahead and look at uh, 2 Kings 5, 11 through 14. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. Sounds like a six-year-old. I thought he would certainly come out and meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. On top of that, come on, aren't the rivers of Damascus and Abana and Farpar, that's hard to say, better than any of the rivers in Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. But God was saying, watch this. But his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he simply says, Go and wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child, and he was healed. He was healed. Not the way that he had wanted, not the way that he expected. He expected somebody to wave their hand over him and then, oh, he's going to be perfect and pure. But God said, watch this. I'm going to heal you through the message that comes from a messenger, not from the guy you came to see. I'm going to heal you in a river that you think is beneath you. 
I'm going to heal you in a way that you didn't expect. My answer to you is yes, but I'm going to show off a little bit. The good news is, whatever insurmountable problem you seem to be facing in your life today, God wants to show off. He's waiting for us to wait in faith and to ask in faith, Lord, what do you want me to do for this miracle to come about? Many times we're just like, Lord, give me what I want. We treat God like a vending machine, don't we? I'm going to put in a couple of prayers, my 50 cents worth of prayers. I'm going to put in my time at church and volunteer in the kids' ministry and change diapers or avoid changing diapers, whichever the case may be. I'm going to volunteer and put in my, my spiritual coins, and then God's going to you know, give me what I want. I'm going to push A12 and get a Snickers. But God is saying, I got something better for you than that. I've got better plans for you than that. He's God. He's not a vending machine for us to poke and prod and punch and make demands of. He's the God of the universe who is holy and perfect and has all power and who needs to be respected and honored. The Lord's ready to show off if you're ready to let him. But you've got to be willing to let him answer how he's going to answer, not how you want him to. There's two things I want to share with you at this point. Um, two reasons not to give up on your problems. And then I'm going to share with you two things that you ought to do when you want to give up on your problems. First of all, if you're taking notes, write this down. Two reasons not to give up on your problems. Number one, God didn't answer the way you wanted he didn't give you the answer you wanted. Write that down. God didn't give you the answer that you wanted. So, so what? Don't give up on your problem. Don't throw your hands up in the air. Okay, forget about it. Hit the button one more time so it shows the answer there. There you go. God didn't give you the answer you wanted, and the slide worked. So, <laughs> um, reasons not to give up on your problem. Just because God didn't give you the answer to your problem doesn't mean that you should throw in the towel. Many pastors are, are tragic examples of this. Many pastors quit their church after a couple of years. In fact, the average stay for American pastors is about 24 months. Isn't that crazy? But all the data shows that if pastors would hang in there for about five years then suddenly their churches will experience breakthrough. The fact is it takes about five years for a pastor to really be able to earn the trust of their people to the point that they'll say, okay, we'll do whatever you ask. We're on board with your calling, vision, whatever it is. It takes time. And so a lot of pastors, because God didn't give them the answer that they wanted, when they wanted it, I'm out. I'm going to go get a job somewhere else, someplace less frustrating. And then they find out their frustrations followed them. But pastors aren't the only ones that are guilty of this. All of us, I think, have had those moments in our marriage. If you're married, you've definitely had those moments in your marriage, right? Where you're like, I'm not sure if we're going to make it. This is hard. 
This is challenging. And the answer for many of us, if you're in that situation, the answer may be that God's giving you is you need to go to counseling to about six months to a year of it. I can't tell you how many times I've had couples with struggling marriages come to me and I tell them, what well, we've got to get you into couples counseling and we've got to get you to a good biblical counselor and here's why. And immediately, it's almost always the husband who says, we tried counseling and that didn't work. Okay, when did you go? Well, we went this one time and really, are you that naive? You think once is going to, it took you 26 years for your marriage to get this fouled up and you're going to fix it in one 50-minute counseling session? Get real. God's answer to your marriage problem is there is significant work ahead. If you're not willing to do that work, you're not going to see God show off and save your marriage. Maybe God's not giving you what you want, so you want to drop out of school. God's not answering what you want to want, uh, what you answering you with what you want, so you want to quit your boss. You, do you know that most people don't quit their jobs; they quit their bosses. I'll never forget one time I quit a boss. Couldn't stand this guy. And I gave up and I quit and I thought this was the best thing. Six months later, that clown was fired. If I just held on for six more measly months, everything would have been different. But I missed out on what God was trying to do because I bailed early. Anybody ever made that kind of mistake? Just jump ship a little bit too soon? And then 2020 hindsight, man, sometimes that's a painful thing, isn't it? It wakes you up and you realize, hmm. Two reasons to not give up on your problems. One, God didn't give you the answer you wanted. Number two, write this down. God's answer seems too simple. Sometimes his answer seems too simple. Now, don't read that or write this down and say, pastor said God's answers are always simple. No, they aren't. Sometimes they are. And when they are, don't overthink it. If God gives you a simple answer like go dip in the river seven times, go dip in the river seven times. Maybe the answer to your pornography addiction problem is that you just need to download a, uh, an accountability app for your phone and for your computer and you need to find an accountability partner. It's a simple thing. You ask somebody for help, and then they can hold you accountable. Maybe that's as simple as it is, but you're like, no, that, that, I'm not going to do that. And you got all these reasons why you're not going to do that. Well, it slows down my phone or my computer or whatever. Really? Come on. Maybe God's answer to you for a challenge in your life is something as simple as you need to fill out one of those uh, connection cards and drop it in the offering bucket when it comes by in a little while and let us know I'm ready to take a step and be baptized. I'm ready to obey God and be baptized. Maybe he's calling you to do something and you're saying, but that's not what I want to do or what I want you to want me to do, Lord. Instead, I want X, Y, or Z 
And so you get frustrated with him. His answer may seem simple. It's just, hey, I want you to do this. And you, just because you don't want to do it, you get, eh, I, I, don't, I get frustrated and I remain disobedient. And do you think God is going to fix what's broken in your life as long as you're not obeying him? Don't overthink it. Whatever he's calling you to do and asking you to do today, do it. It's this, just that simple. So what do you do when you want to give up on your problem? You say, all right, Alan, you've convinced me not to give up on my problem, but I really want to. This is so hard. This is so challenging. This is so difficult. What do I do? Well, write these two things down. One, act on what you know. Act on what you know. The first place to start with what we know is Scripture. Do you know that 99.99999% of God's will for your life is found in the Bible? A lot of people ask, what's God's will for my life? They're just asking somebody to come and wave their hand like Naaman was. Wave your hand over me and then I'll know, here's God's will for your life. God's not going to give you a clear roadmap that's going to say, I want you to marry so-and-so, and I want it to be on this date and in this place, and you need to wear this dress, and you know, then go get this job and go to this school. And he's not going to give you that kind of clarity. So what do you do? The clarity that God gives us is in Scripture. What does scripture teach us? Oodles. Here's, here's some practical examples, all right? Don't have sex of any kind outside of marriage. Scripture's very clear on that. But I've got these feelings for this person, so it must be from God. Let me ask you, just pose a hypothetical here. What, what would happen if everybody in the world just obeyed one of the Ten Commandments? The commandment about adultery. The commandment that's all about sexual purity. What if we just obeyed that one and could get everybody on the planet to stick with that? How would our world be different? If everybody would stick to God's plan for sex, which is this. God's not a, a prude. He's not like anti-sex. God made it, and it's awesome. God created it and wants us to have sex in the confines of marriage. He created it for a husband and a wife, period. That's it. Now, what if we stick to that? Suddenly, there's no such thing as an unwanted pregnancy. There would be no more abortion. There would be no more waking up the morning after and feeling guilty. There would be no broken hearts because you gave everything to this person who then treated you like garbage afterwards or wouldn't return your phone calls later or just wanted a one-night stand. Oh my gosh, how much better would life be without that problem? 
So what do we do? We act on what we know. Scripture is clear about what is right with sex. So let's live by that. Scripture's clear on the borrower is slave to the lender. So if you don't want to be in slavery, don't be in debt. The Bible doesn't say debt is a sin. The Bible just makes it clear that debt is pretty dumb. But God loves his stupid children too, so I've got debt. I'm, I'm in good shape. God loves me anyway. But I know what it's like to feel like I'm a slave to that lender. So what do I do? Act on what I know. Don't get any more credit cards. Chop up the ones that I've got. Start the debt snowball. Pay this stuff off. The reason we don't plot to murder that boss that we can't stand is because we're acting on what we know. We know murder's wrong. And how do we know that? Because God's word defines it for us. It tells us. God's word is so clear. Act on what you know. Don't overthink it. What is God calling you to do? I asked you that just a minute ago. What is God saying to you that you need to do that, well, I'm just not going to do it because maybe that's too simple or it's not what I want to do or whatever. Do it anyway. Ask for help. Download that accountability app today. Find an accountability partner. If you're having an emotional affair with somebody on Facebook, it's pretty clear. You know what you need to do. Delete your Facebook account. Cut it off. Go to counseling for your marriage. Pay off that debt. Ask someone for forgiveness. Act on what you know. Number two, when you want to give up on your problem, you act on what you know and write this down. See your problem through. See it through. All the way through. Seven times, not six times. Naaman was told to go dip in the River Jordan. Seven times. And so he did it how many times, class? Seven times. Real simple. He didn't do it six, except that then it was followed by seven. He didn't do it eight times. He did it seven times. I'm just guessing here. But I think that when he dipped his body in the first time and he came up out of the water, that he probably didn't look any different. And the second time, probably didn't look any different. If there was improvement, it was so small he didn't really notice it. Until finally, on dip seven, the change came. The point I'm making is that Whatever your, ins- your insurmountable problem is, God's answer for that is for you to see it all the way through. It may not feel like any change is happening with steps one through six. Change may only come on step seven. The change may only come on step 27 or 127. However many steps it's going to be, God is saying, See it through to the end. You want your marriage to get better? Go to counseling. All of it. Do the counseling homework. All of it. Take the steps that you need to take and see them through all the way to the end. Momentum 
is built slowly. And the momentum to overcome that problem in your life will only come after a lot of pushes on the hamster wheel. See it through. Push through. So let me ask you, what's God teaching you through your unbeatable problem? What's he teaching you through your unbeatable problem? In 2 Kings 5, 19 through, 5, 15 through 19, let's read the end of the story. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him, and Naaman said, Now I know that there is no other God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept as a, a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, All right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place, and I will take it back home, uh, back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other god except the Lord. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master, the king, goes into the temple of the god of Rimmon to worship there and leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow too. Go in peace, Elisha said. So Naaman started home again. Boy, there is a lot there that I'm not going to get to cover today. There is a lot there about this guy choosing to follow God and um, not sacrifice to other idols, but acting, asking God for leniency in this one thing. When my king goes in and has to bow, let me help him, you know, and, and please don't take that as an insult, Lord. I'm not worshiping another God. I'm only worshiping you. I'm just helping my king because that's my job. Um, <clears throat> uh, there's a whole lot there that we're not going to be able to talk about. What I want to hit real quick is that God used the leprosy or this, this living picture of leprosy to draw Naaman into a faith relationship with the Lord. This was the most important thing. The most important thing in this story is not that he was healed physically. The most important thing is that Naaman was healed spiritually. This guy came into a relationship with God. So this begs the question, how does a person in the Old Testament get saved? As Christians, we talk about being saved all the time. Uh, all of us have sinned. Except Jesus, he never sinned. He came to earth, he died, uh, lived a perfect life, and then he died a criminal's death in your place and in my place, paying for our sin so that we could be made righteous, so that we could be forgiven. Now, as, as Christians, we understand this. This is basic tenets to our faith, but many times we look back at the Old Testament and we think, well, how did a person get saved in the Old Testament because there's all these rules to follow in the Old Testament. Scripture says it's not by works, but by faith that you're saved in the New Testament. So what about the Old Testament? You have to slaughter a bunch of animals and do all of these crazy things in, in order to get into heaven. And the answer is really, really, really simple. A person in the Old Testament was saved exactly the same way that a person in the New Testament is saved. God says, I don't change. So how was a person in the Old Testament saved? Not by slitting a lamb's throat, but by putting faith in God. Hebrews chapter 11 says that Abraham trusted God, obeyed him, and it was credited to, credited to him as faith. In other words, it was Abraham's faith that saved him. Abraham lived before the Old Testament was written. And how was he saved? By his good works? 
No. By faith in the one living God. So Naaman here became a believer, a pre-Christian, a Christian before there were Christians. This guy converted and believed in God, and his faith statement was, there's no other God except in Israel, and I'm not going to sacrifice to any other God except to this one. This is the only one true God. And even to go to the extent of saying, and Lord, I'm going to be so committed to you that I'm not going to worship even my king's God when he takes me into the temple. The only reason I'm kneeling, Lord, is because I'm helping an old man up and down. This is huge, guys. The most important thing that happened to Naaman is that he was saved from his sin. Because his biggest problem was not his biggest problem. It wasn't leprosy. His really, it, it really, his biggest problem was sin. And your biggest problem is not your unbeatable problem. Your biggest problem is sin. So we spent all this time today, and you've been thinking about your unbeatable problem, mulling it over and hoping that God's going to answer your unbeatable problem with watch this, he's going to show off and do all this awesome stuff. But the real message of this story is what if God says no? Is your heart right with him? Are you aware that your biggest problem is sin, not your problems? You see, the reality is all of us live with some kind of darkness inside us that God is still trying to weed out. Some kind of sin in us that the Lord is trying to eliminate. What darkness is in you that's contributing to your problems? How much of your marriage problem is actually because of your sin? How much of your job problems are because of your sin? How much of your parenting challenges, your addiction, your financial problems, your fill-in-the-blank problems, how much of those problems are due to something in your life that's not right with God. That's what you need to deal with today. Will you have the boldness to say, I'm going to turn my whole life over to the Lord? Every part of it? There is no other God but just you, Lord. And so you are God. You are Lord of my life in charge of all of it. Forgive my sin. Change me. What's in me that's broken and messed up, Lord, change it. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the Invictus Church podcast. Be sure to tune in every week for more new content. We'd like to invite you to join us in person for our weekend worship services. To get more information about our meeting times and location, please visit us online at www.invictus.church. If this or any of our episodes have inspired you to take steps in your relationship with Jesus, please let us know by sending us a note at info at invictus.church. We would love to hear how our message has helped change your life. 
Also, if our podcast has been meaningful for you and you'd like to give financially to our ministry, you can easily make your contribution online at www.invictus.church. Thanks one more time for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week.